Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed, a summer wave calls for greater protection against BA5 and fears of a surge in cases this fall. Just some of the many COVID-19 headlines making news these past couple of weeks. Here with York Region Public Health's perspective on what's now and what's next is Dr. Joanne Fernandez, Associate Medical Officer of Health, YRPH. Welcome to the feed, Dr. Fernandez. Really good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So what is telling you at Public Health, York Region, that we are approaching or are in a summer wave? Yeah, so currently we are seeing um, an increase in the amount of COVID in our wastewater here in New York region, but also across the province. Um, And that is signaling to us that we are starting to see the beginning of a wave. Um, It is a bit more gradual in terms of the number of cases that we're seeing compared to, um, you know, some of the most deeper increases that we've had in the past. But we are very closely monitoring the um, level of COVID in our wastewater, but also um, the outbreaks, for example, that we're seeing in our institutional settings like long-term care homes, retirement homes, as well as um, hospitalization um, type activity. And Dr. Fernandez, which subvariant is the culprit here? Is it BA5? And we understand it's an Omicron subvariant and it's described as immune evasive. That's, That's tough. Yeah, so that's that's right. Currently, what we believe um, uh, we believe that BA five is the um, the dominant sort of subvariant that we're seeing. It is more transmissible than some of the other subvariants, which is kind of why we're seeing this spread um, in the summer. Um, from what we know about it so far, we don't uh, think that it necessarily leads to more severe outcomes as some of the other subvariants, but we are also, of course, um, very closely monitoring that. What do we need to know about BA5 and how do we protect ourselves against it? We just heard earlier in the week that 17 million Canadians caught or were infected by Omicron over the past several months for a period of about five months. How do we stop ourselves from catching BA5? The most important thing really with BA5 and with Omicron um, in general um, is is vaccination. That is the one thing that we have that really protects against those severe outcomes. To some extent, it does also prevent us from getting the infection itself. Um, but really, what's you know very important is that protection that we receive from vaccination against most some of those severe health outcomes that really affect people's well-being, impacts our healthcare system as well. So vaccination is the number one thing that we we can do. Interesting. Specific vaccines. The FDA in the United States is looking at specific vaccine boosters that will target BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we we do have, um, as well here in Canada, we are waiting for approval on the bivalent Moderna vaccine, which also specifically targets Omicron. Um, And so this may be part of, you know, what is offered in the fall in terms of the vaccination um, available to people. We're not entirely sure whether it may be targeted to just those who are at higher risk or to the general population. 
um, but it is something that appears to be a bit more effective against Omicron, including BA4 and BA5. Um, and so that, that will be a useful tool for us to have as well. Nasi last week recommended additional boosters be offered to more Canadians. Uh, healthcare providers here in this province are urging the provincial government to expand second booster eligibility well beyond 60 plus. What's the problem? Why is there that hesitation on the part of the government? And I know you can't speak negatively or positively about what's going on with them, but why would there be any hesitation about rolling out the second booster for all Ontarians? We are waiting on um, the province to provide a bit of guidance uh, there with respect to the second booster dose. Um, Up to this point, you know, what we know about vaccination is that really everyone who's eligible should have that third vaccination. Um, That fourth dose is really important for people who are a little bit more at risk, um, more medically vulnerable, older in age. So, um, you know, typically the 60 plus population who is currently actually eligible for that fourth dose. And those are the people who we really want to protect because they are more at risk of those severe outcomes. So the vaccine is available for that group. Um, We're, in terms of the evidence, still not entirely sure how much of a benefit that fourth dose can really um, provide to people who are younger and healthier. Um, And so that's why, you know, the recommendations from NASI uh, really only just came out last week in preparation for that, um, you know, a fall peak. So we will, uh, you know, wait to see what the province says in terms of rolling it out uh, a bit more widely. Um, that is generally what what would be expected based on what was recommended by NASI last week. So, Dr. Fernandez, here's an interesting and and somewhat troubling statistic. Apparently, only 40% of the population has had the third shot, which is the first booster. Yes, that's right. So, and the third dose is really something that is, um, you know, really important. We know that the two doses, the immunity from that does wane. So, we do need the third dose on board for pretty much everyone um, 12 plus at this point in time um, in order to confer that, um, that additional immunity or boost. So, we are encouraging people, if you've not had your third dose and you're eligible, it's extremely important for you to be up to date on on um, on your vaccines, um, and that is really what's going to help protect in the face of um, you know this new wave that we are experiencing. Interesting as well. Each wave of the virus is leaving more people with long COVID or post COVID conditions, and this can impact individuals and their families. But it also puts a heavy burden on the healthcare system, wider economy, and society at large. This, according to the WHO, the World Health Organization, do we, are we taking this seriously? Are we taking the waves seriously? And so, with respect to long COVID, again, it really goes back to vaccination. So um, vaccination, we know, helps also um, decrease some of those long-term effects that we have from long COVID, which, you know, as you've said, can um, affect people's well-being and, um, and, and, you know, livelihood as well. So, again, it really goes back to ensuring that people who are eligible to get their vaccination do get that vaccination to sort of prevent um, some of those more severe health outcomes, but also things like long COVID. 
um, which can tend to affect people for, for many, many months and years to come. What do you say to those who remain unvaccinated or have only had their first shot, maybe their second shot, and, and they refuse to carry on down the path? We really encourage vaccination for people who are unvaccinated or, or partially vaccinated. Um, and I think what's important right now is that, you know, we don't have the same pandemic control measures that we had previously. Um, so in terms of mandatory masking or the capacity limits and things like that, those are those are not in place anymore, um, which may have conferred a bit of protection for people who are unvaccinated. So um, really, as it stands at the moment, um, we're entering a period of, of quite a bit of risk for those individuals and, and really encourage um, them to, to consider vaccination. And we have our clinics that are up and running um, and continue to, to accept people for, um, for vaccination. Canada's top doc, Teresa Tam, is sounding the alarm when it comes to the possibility of what's being called a seventh wave in the fall. It's July. It's early July. So how do we protect ourselves, anticipate this? How do we get one step ahead of BA5 or whatever subvariant is going to rear its ugly head come the fall here in Canada? Yeah, so it's, it's a bit unclear exactly, um, you know, what this wave that we're experiencing at this moment is um, really going to look like. You know, whatever may happen now in the summer may also affect what we tend to see in the fall. So if we have a bit more of a significant wave uh, right now in the summer due to BA5, it may change the picture for the fall. We are anticipating, though, as you said, a surge in the fall. And again, the answer to that always is to ensure that people are up to date on their vaccinations um, in order to to have the you know the best possible protection from those severe health outcomes that really tend to stress our healthcare system and make people really unwell. Dr. Fernandez, I am one of the 17 million people who had. Uh Omicron, COVID-19, I had it in February. Almost every person that I know and friends with or family members, each and every one of them has had COVID-19 and through that period of time, the 17 million that we are talking about. Why did that happen? I had three shots. Most of my friends had three shots, and yet we all contracted it in in and around the same sort of five-month period. Why did that happen? Yeah, so what we know about the vaccine is that, um, especially with Omicron, there was a, a, you know, a vaccine escape. So it didn't necessarily protect you from getting the infection like it may have done for previous variants, um, the original sort of COVID strains, but it did still protect from what we know based on the data and the statistics from those really severe health outcomes. So while it may have not um, you know, prevented you from getting Omicron um, to begin with, it did help to protect against some of those more severe outcomes. Talk of public health measures, and you've touched on this, things like masking and social distancing, they're bubbling to the surface again. Will that help? And will Ontarians be willing to put their masks back on and do it voluntarily? Yeah, we, we knew that um, mandatory pandemic control measures were really not going to be in place um, forever or long term, they do remain in places where it, it makes a lot of sense to protect people who are immunocompromised, for example, in long-term care homes, in retirement homes, um, and many hospitals as well have instituted masking policies. Um, outside of those settings, 
we we're not hearing any signals from the province that at this point in time, you know, mandatory control measures is something that they're considering. It may be a different case in the fall, depending on what we see. Um, but there are a lot of other considerations as well with pandemic control measures. It's not solely a public health decision, but, you know, also with capacity limits, there were economic considerations, um, social considerations as well. So there are a lot of factors um, that, you know, really come into play. But I think at this point in the game, people know what they uh, can be doing to sort of decrease their risk of getting COVID. Um, wearing a mask in a crowded space that's not very well ventilated with lots of close contact is always a good idea and something that we recommend. Um, and so these are all things that people can continue to do to decrease their risk on an individual level. And why do you think that there is still hesitation on the part of those eligible for whichever shot they, that is before them? So the 60 plus, they're eligible for the fourth shot, the second booster. Why is there hesitation still on the part of many to, to be involved in the full vaccination campaign? I think, you know, in the past couple of months, we've seen a bit of a decrease in terms of the COVID activity that we've seen. Of course, now things are ramping up again. Um, but I think that that sense of urgency um, hasn't necessarily been around. People are, you know, eager to enjoy their summers, to travel and, and, and do all the things that they've missed in the past couple of years um, and really sort of leave COVID behind. So I think that sense of urgency perhaps hasn't been there. Um, and so I think it's really important for people to know that, you know, we don't think COVID is going away anytime soon. We're going to continue to see these sort of ebbs and flows and really the way that we can continue to ensure that, um, you know, society continues to function, people continue to do the things that they want to do, is to ensure that they stay well. Um, and, and, and we do that through getting vaccinated so that we can um, be best protected from those severe outcomes. If we were to go to your website, what would we find in terms of information and encouragement? On our website, we have uh, lots of information on, you know, what the picture in York region is, which I encourage people to check out in terms of what we're seeing in our wastewater, as well as outbreaks and, and hospitalizations and deaths. So that data is available there's also information available on our website about um, vaccination resources and links to websites where you can, um, you know, make more informed decisions as well on vaccination. And of course, we have information on our website about our vaccine clinics um, that are uh, basically placed throughout the region and, and open on weekends and evenings uh, for people to access. And our website is york.ca slash COVID-19. Dr. Joanne Fernandez, Associate Medical Officer of Health for York Region, thank you so much for your time on the feed. Thanks very much, Jen. Post-pandemic travel is causing chaos at airports and land borders. Glenn Perkins next with making your travel a little easier. In recent weeks, we've heard horror stories of Canadians getting stuck at airports or cancelling dream vacations because of delayed or cancelled flights. Daryl Dalton with the Canadian Border Services Agency joins us on the program with some tips to make your travels less stressful. Daryl, welcome to the program. Thank you. Daryl, for people who have been away and are returning home, what changes will they notice? Yeah, so I'll say that, you know, it's important to be aware and, and to be prepared. Uh, in terms of being aware... 
some of the requirements that are now there for travelers, and that includes the requirement for the ArriveCAN application to be completed. All travelers, regardless of their vaccination status, are required to submit their information in the ArriveCAN up to 72 hours before entering Canada. And then another piece that I'll talk about about being aware is sort of what's available. There's a new process that we have. Uh, it's available currently right now at Toronto Pearson and Vancouver airports, and it's called the Advanced Declaration. What happens there is air travelers that land in Toronto and Vancouver, they may use the ArriveCAN app to complete their customs and immigration declarations in advance. So this helps save some time when they're coming through the border. They can now, instead of conducting their declaration at the primary inspection kiosk on arrival, they'll already have it done. And then when they get to the primary inspection kiosks or the e-gate at Terminal 1, it's a matter of scanning their travel document, confirming their identity, confirming that they have no changes to their declaration, they'll get their receipt and they'll move on. So it really expedites the process. And it's, it's something that's relatively new. Again, it's only at Toronto, Pearson and Vancouver, but we're already seeing great success with travelers being expedited through the, the overall process. And what has the reaction been to these new services that's been offered? Change can be challenging to some people, but I think, you know, it's really exciting. And, and the Canada Border Services Agency, we're really always constantly looking for innovative ways to facilitate and expedite border processing. We're leveraging technology. So, Travelers, you know, will see some changes here. They'll see some different things, like I said, the e-gates, the arrival, the advanced declaration. But uh, all these are exciting things that are going to help us. Um, you know, we're modernizing our border process. And by doing so, this is going to ultimately allow our, our officers to focus more on the high-risk activities, such as conducting, you know, secondary examinations and enforcement and improving the delivery of the agency's safety and security mandate. For people who are returning or coming to Canada maybe for the first time, we've been hearing about the delays, especially at Pearson. What advice would you give for people who are experiencing this? I guess be prepared for a few things. And from the CBSA perspective, the preparation comes with making sure you have everything that is required. And that's going back to making sure that the ArriveCAN declaration is done. You've got every travel document that's required. And having that ready when you get up to the officer, those few additional seconds when you have, you know, sometimes thousands of people coming through an airport, and as an example, or even the land border, those few seconds saved by having everything ready for the officer can make a big difference. We've spoken about air travel. What about if we're traveling across the border in a vehicle? What do we need to know about that? Similarly, the ArriveCAN is a requirement. Uh, again, regardless of your vaccination status, uh, ArriveCAN is a requirement. For those that are traveling by land, we have some tools that can be used to sort of help with getting through the process a little bit quicker. And I might suggest that travelers look at our Canada Border Services Agency website that estimates border wait times at select port of entry. So they can have a look at that and see which ports are busy. They can see what time of day it might be busy. And we also encourage travelers to try and cross the land borders during off-peak hours. A lot of the time, this is in the early morning. I was going to ask you about the travel times, whether morning is best or whether it's in the evening. Yeah, I, I mean, you start to think about some of the workers that come across. They come in for their morning shifts or they go home in their, their afternoon shifts. We've got some of the cross-border workers. So I, I really do encourage travelers to look at the uh, the Canada Border Services Agency website to get those estimated border times. But off hours seem to be really early uh, in the morning. I know that may be, may be not ideal for some travelers, but if you're looking to try and get through a little bit quicker, that might be your best approach. And I know that for some travelers, traveling can be tiring when you're returning home from maybe overseas, and it's easy to get frustrated with some of the CBSA employees, but it comes back down to they're only doing their job. Yeah, that's correct. And, and I, I get the frustration. I get the stress. Traveling can be extremely stressful, and, and we just appreciate all the cooperation from travelers. Daryl Dalton with the CBSA. Thank you for speaking with us today. No problem. Have a great day. After the break, reinventing the family business. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Entrepreneurs of all types have evolved, pivoted through this pandemic. The same applies to family businesses. Tina Cortez now with a new report about the next generation. In this post-pandemic time, businesses big and small have come and gone, but in a new report from KPMG in Canada, family businesses have been able to reinvent themselves, stay competitive, and achieve multi-generational success. With the details is Daniel Tremarkey, Director and National Leader, Family Dynamics and Governance for KPMG in Canada. Welcome to the feed, Daniel. Thanks, Tina. It's great to be here. So this report explored the factors that drive the performance and continuity of family businesses from one generation to the next. What are the key takeaways that explain why some businesses endure for generations and are more successful than others? I think one of the first things that came through with the the report was actually how we define performance. And what we found with with family businesses in particular is that in addition to the traditional financial performance, there's a lot of other factors that include in their decision-making and in the way they go about planning and continuing their businesses. So the impact of both external and internal social influences, um, be it ESG uh, and environmental uh, from an external perspective or be it diversity and inclusion from an internal team perspective, a lot of these factors made up the definition of performance and it was important when we tried to measure the success and, and to your point, measure the continuity of these family businesses uh, that we were, we were doing so with those different and kind of broader definitions of performance. And what we found then when we looked at the formula almost for that success and why certain families were succeeding, uh, it really came down to two broader factors. One was the entrepreneurial orientation of the family and one was the, the family's role and impact in the business. And both of those drove performance across those factors. Before we get into the connection between family and the business, the report identified four types of family businesses. Can you go through those for us and, and what they all mean? So when we took those those two key elements of entrepreneurial orientation and then also the, the socio-emotional or the, the family impact, we saw four clear buckets uh, defined. And the, the difference between those was really the success factors or the performance across the two metrics. So when we looked at entrepreneurial orientation, we were really looking at things like the innovation uh, within the family business, their proactiveness uh, and their appetite for risk-taking. Uh, and then on the involvement of the family side, it was the family's control and influence in decision-making. It was the family's attachment uh, often to the family business and the reputational impact that these businesses had. And so those four factors, or sorry, those four performance uh, types really highlighted the peak performance 
who had a high entrepreneurial orientation uh, and a high socio-emotional wealth. And then we saw business-first families that, again, maintained that entrepreneurial orientation but may have been less connected from a family perspective. The inverse of that was obviously those families where there was a high level of family involvement, Mm. um, but the entrepreneurial orientation against those factors of innovation, proactiveness, and risk-taking weren't as high. And then the last of the four categories highlighted those family businesses where we saw low entrepreneurial entrepreneurial orientation uh, and also low family involvement or or socio-emotional wealth. So let's talk about that a little bit further. Why is the connection between the family and the business so important in terms of business performance and longevity? Well, we saw several kind of competitive advantages that came from that high family involvement. So when we talk about the speed of decision-making and the agility of the management team to often pivot from a business perspective, uh, especially throughout the pandemic and, and coming out of the pandemic, the ability to enter new markets or new industries, uh, to go into new geographies, Uh, the role of the family and the connectivity between the shareholders and the owners uh, and those in management really highlighted a a competitive advantage. Uh, The other element from a family perspective was that long-term outlook. A lot of these families are thinking in quarter centuries rather than yearly quarters. And so that ability to think out multi-generational allowed them to make decisions that really set the business up for success, again, throughout the generations. So this agility in their decision-making matched with their long-term outlook really helped differentiate them from a a performance perspective, again, both in the short-term and the long-term. And did the report reveal differences between Canadian family businesses versus other countries? Well, we saw Canadian family businesses rank quite high in terms of their entrepreneurial orientation. And this was across uh, over 70 countries that we looked at this study. And we saw that in Canada, uh, predominant entrepreneurial leadership style steered towards that proactive and risk-taking mindset. And so when we saw that uh, tied with this idea of succession and continuity uh, from a governance perspective, a lot of Canadian family businesses are being very proactive in both how they tackle their family and their business governance, uh, which was a really powerful point coming back to those definitions of performance that we we mentioned earlier. Mm. And what is your best advice then for underperforming family businesses? Well, when we looked at the the factors where the most opportunity existed, uh, really it was around the roles of the different generations. Um, We're seeing, and we saw this in previous research that we completed, that families that have multiple generations active in the business have a higher aptitude towards digital transformation and business transformation. So leveraging the success and the history of the past with the proactive and the digitally enabled future generations really allowed families to succeed. And that education piece around what it means to be a shareholder or a steward of this wealth uh, was really important. So taking that education uh, and also taking that proactive and digital lens, I think mixed with 
an element of diversity of opinions and views, um, be it within the family or within the business, are all key success factors that allow these families to continue on again across the generations. It sounds like good advice, Daniel, but it sounds complicated. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we saw with a lot of the information we received, not just in the report, but in many of the conversations we had with families, was that these are not conversations that can be solved overnight. And so the families that, again, started these conversations early brought independence and sometimes outside perspective uh, were really able to benefit from that. So bringing structure to what can sometimes be quite an unstructured conversation really allowed some of those families to move into that peak performance profile that we, we talked about earlier. Fascinating. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? So the report and all the supporting findings can be found at, at kpmg.ca um, and obviously happy to connect with, with any of the listeners, be it on LinkedIn or, or through the website. So many more, many much more information available. Terrific. Thanks so much for your time, Daniel. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Could digital ID help to streamline business practices? Jim Lang with the answer. Digital identity is obviously a big thing in Canada and something, well, I mean, you can't live without a digital world right now. It is the way we live right now. To talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be joined by Imran Bashir, who is the National Public Sector Cyber Leader at KPMG in Canada. Imran, how are you? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having me today. This is, I mean, this has become such a part of our lives. I can't think of anything now isn't affected by the cyber world in the digital world. I mean, is there anything anymore? No, not really, man. Most of our lives, I know me personally, I spend the majority of my time connected with some kind of device, that's for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I also think about everything we do with banking, uh, interacting with, uh, you know, a, a, a government service, interacting with, say, the public library. It's all being done digitally. I mean, so... How do we create the perfect digital ID when everything around our world, everything in our lives revolves around this? Yeah, so, you know, for, for me, digital identity is one of the foundational elements, you know, of a real digital economy. I think right now, I'd say we're kind of, in Canada specifically, dancing around the edges of digital identity. And what I mean by that is we kind of have, we have a couple provinces, uh, BC and Alberta, that have, that have issued a, an optional identity for some services, for some citizens. We have some other provinces that have announced some, um, some, some projects but haven't really implemented yet. And, and the rest of us are kind of just making our way online with a bunch of, I don't know about you, but I have a whole bunch of what I would call soft identities in the sense that I use one for my bank and a different one for my LinkedIn and a different one for my Twitter and so on and so forth. And I, I think where the world is heading is now realizing that, number one, Having a uh, hundred or so different soft identities probably isn't the way to do this as it proliferates, you know, a bunch of different accounts that could be compromised or a whole bunch of what I think happens a lot is password reuse and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And where, where we're trending now in Canada is, is to move toward a, a, a digital identity that can use uh, entrusted and high assurance situations. Like you couldn't, for example, use your Twitter account to go get a, a federal uh, benefit or, or file your taxes. But one day, hopefully soon, you will have a trust identity that can be used with your consent um, to do a whole bunch of high-value services that are traditionally done maybe in person or, you know, heaven forbid, uh, using a fax machine. 
You know, Imran, I, I know one of my municipal elections in my area, the region where I live, we voted virtually and we got a, a, a special passcode for everyone and you could vote for the mayor and the councillor, et cetera, that way. Is, is that something in the future, provincially, federally, we'll have such a cybersecurity and a cyber setup with Elections Canada? We won't even have to go into a polling station. We can vote from our home. I think that's one of the options in the future. The, the one caveat I would say for digital identity, specifically in our country, is that we will have to baby step our way to that. There are some European countries, uh, I can think of Estonia for one, that do their elections completely online with their digital identity. Hmm. But I will say that they have a very mature digital identity system that's been in place for a, a quite a while and, you know, fully transparent, uh, fully trusted by its citizenry. Uh, we have a long way to go to get there, if I'm being totally frank. Uh, but that is a plausible future once we kind of baby step our way there. I would personally love to see our country just start with Little things, proof of age. You know, if, if you're buying uh, if you're buying alcohol or going to a bar, for example. Because if you if you think about it, right now when we do those things, and if you're still fortunate enough to get carded, <laughs> uh, or, or when you go to a liquor store, for example, you are sharing a boatload of information. You are sharing your your name, your address, your height, your weight, and a whole bunch of other elements that are on that piece of plastic. When really all that place needs to know is that you're over the age of 19 and nothing more. Right. So. For me, I would love to see our identity start in this country by reducing the amount of information we share in these little day-to-day transactions and then eventually getting up to something, like you mentioned, uh, voting online. Now, and, and the parallel to all of this is what everyone fears and around the world, especially in Canada, is identity fraud. That fear that someone's mm-hmm. stolen my password, someone's stolen my identity. We see this all the time in social media. Hey, ignore that message. I've been hacked. How do we expand our digital identity in this country, but stay safe at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, when implemented properly, and I, I will use that caveat of when implemented properly, which is why I would say our country is a little bit slow. Uh, we have done a lot of homework on making sure this stuff is done right. But when it's done right, you will have full visibility to how your identity is used. So you, you will be notified immediately of a transaction that doesn't look right or is not conducted from your device or if it's conducted in a time zone that doesn't make sense, or an IP address or geolocation that doesn't make sense, proactively notifying you and nipping the fraud in the bud. What happens right now is that sometimes we, you know, for those who have been victims of identity fraud, and I think that the stat is roughly a third of Canadians uh, these days, uh, you sometimes don't find out for months or sometimes years afterwards. And by then, the damage is already done, and then you're left holding the bag, trying to recover this for the rest of your life. And so... The benefit of a digital identity is that it'll help minimize that time uh, for the bad guys to do the bad stuff and, and hopefully get you back in, in service quickly. And I think you having full knowledge of where your identity is being used empowers you, which is, which is something I certainly don't feel like as a citizen today, that I'm empowered to know where my information is, when it's being used, how it's being used. And that's where I think identity can certainly help. Fascinating. Speaking with Imran Bashar, the National Public Sector Cyber Leader, at KPMG in Canada, you alluded to something earlier that I know I do, that I will post different things on Facebook than I would on LinkedIn or I would on Twitter. And I, I know most people in my age group, most of my friends would put maybe more personal stuff on Facebook, a business-related thing on LinkedIn, and maybe something else about sports or music on Twitter. Isn't that the way most people do it? And you're saying there's a better way to do it, Imran? Oh, no, I, I think that's the right way to do it in, in, in that sense, for sure. I think using those social media tools is, is going to be, um, uh, you know, your prerogative and how you want to use them. What I mean for identity is that we don't want to use those tools to represent who we are. For example, I can tomorrow make a Jim Lang 99 account 
on Twitter or Instagram, but, but that doesn't make me Jim Lang. Oh, so I think right. What we need to get used to is the fact that those um, social media type sites or anything, what I would call soft or low, low credibility or low assurance, doesn't mean we have to trust um, uh, you know that I'm Jim Lang, for example. Hmm. However, if uh, if you are trying to do an interaction with a Canada Revenue Agency or your bank, you certainly want some kind of assurance that you're Jim Lang and I'm not, um, and that we want to make sure a higher level of credibility in your identity is, is assured. How much of this, you know, is that Canadians by nature are very trusting, honest people, and we just assume that everyone's doing the right thing, even though there are bad people out there in the internet. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. I, I do think our our country is, is a lot more trusting than most. Um, but I do think we're starting to ask the right questions. Uh, lately, I, you know, one topic I've heard a lot come up in identity is, oh, if we put an identity in this country, does that mean the government can track us? Will they surveil us all the time? And, and those are the right questions to ask. I will assure people that the answer is no to those questions. That is not the intention. In fact, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's what I said earlier about um, having you as the individual having full knowledge on where your identity is used, by when, by who, et cetera. And I think by asking the right questions and prompting people to come back with the answers that we need, that's how we're going to hold our, our country accountable to delivering something that is privacy protecting and gives us the assurance and confidence in the system. Now, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here because my wife and I love shows like 24 and those kind of movies. And all of a sudden, there's something happens. Like, and all of a sudden, they tr- let's go and they can track them. They track them through their social media. They, they ping their cell phone. As much as we're part of the digital identity, because we have the phones with us all the time, it, I guess there's no way to avoid that. Am I correct? Well, it, it's tough, right? I mean, there's a, there's a concept called um, uh, dual-use technology, things that uh, can benefit society and things that could potentially be used for, you know, undesirable purposes. Yeah. Something like a GPS is a good example. GPS on its own, fantastic technology. We all use it every day to navigate uh, place to place. With that technology comes some risk that bad actors can use it for nefarious purposes. Oh. And I think the key with all technology, whether it be um, uh, GPS or, or nuclear energy is another one that can be used for good and for evil, uh, digital identity is the same. I think the important part about all these ecosystems is to make sure you understand what those risks are before it is put in place, mitigate them up front, and communicate um, to the, the users of it how and why and when it can be used. And I think that's why, to be totally honest, why I think we've been so slow with identity in this country, for a good reason, to make sure we have all those I's dotted and crossed before we do something maybe a bit too quickly and maybe introduce risks that we don't want to introduce. You're obviously an expert in your field and have a great depth of knowledge for the subject, but even at, at, at your level, Imran, are, there's sometimes where you're like, wow, that even surprises me. Does that happen to you sometimes? Oh, man, absolutely. Like, I, I'm not going to profess to know everything about this field. No, no I do I think anyone can. The challenge with technology is that it changes so fast. Like, it's not like, I don't know, construction material. Wood, wood, <laughs> yeah. wood has been wood for, for generations. And, and, and that's great. Uh, but technology, you know, what was true two years ago, sometimes changes so quickly. Things like, uh, you've probably heard of blockchain and all these other yeah. technologies come out. And, and they have different applications. And they change the paradigm for some of these ecosystems. And, and, and so, yeah, to answer your question, I will never profess to know everything about this. And I just want to be in a constant learning state, to be honest. I think we all have to be uh, the same way because there is no 100% as technology changes so An absolute pleasure. As always, if you need more information, go to KPMG in Canada. They'll help you out. Imran, uh, uh, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. All the best. Likewise. Have a great rest of your day.
When we come back, lights, camera, action. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Attention movie lovers, it is the return of the summer blockbuster. After more than two years of pandemic-related release delays, this summer is shaping up to be a cinephile's dream come true with a big box office bonanza of fabulous feature films being rolled out each and every week. Here now with her take on what's sizzling hot so far, Top Gun, Elvis, Thor, and what's coming to a theater near you this summer is Terry Hart. I call her a screen gem. Terry is a legendary entertainment reporter now with Super Channel and now talking to us on the feed. Hey, it's so great to hear your voice and be with you. How are you, Terry? And I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, what does the return of the summer blockbuster mean to the film industry, but really to people like me, the movie lover? Well, what it means and what we're seeing at the box office right now is people wanted to go back to the movie theater. (laughs) And I'm so excited. I mean, we're seeing things like, you know, Top Gun Maverick being the first movie, uh, sorry, the second movie post-pandemic to make over a billion dollars at the box office. That's the, like a billion. Um, You know, that is a movie that delivered on all of its promises of being a sequel to Top Gun from the, you know, the volleyball scene that turned into a football scene mm-hmm. to shirtless to the return of Val Kilmer. I mean, it just kicked all the boxes. And we've even got Tom Cruise running. What else can you ask for? And then from there, we went to Jurassic World Dominion, which critics really did pan. Like, I will say, Jurassic World Dominion is not so great. But audiences didn't care. They were like, give me more dinosaurs. I want all the dinosaurs. <laughs> and it means, like, globally, you know, over $825 million. I mean, this weekend is raking in more money. This past weekend, last weekend, which was a holiday weekend both here in Canada and in the U.S., it was all about Minions, the rise of Gru. And people were so excited for this part of the Minions franchise the Despicable Me franchise, they were dressing up. They were going dressed up as bananas in their suits. So this is a love of movies. These are events. People are turning them into events. And then, of course, you have a movie that is an original title, not a sequel, not within a franchise like those other are, others are. And I know you were a big fan of this movie, and mm. Elvis, which, of course, the incredible performance by Austin Butler. A different kind of movie because it's original content, although Elvis is very well-known. It's still an original story, and it's made, like, over $150 million. So that's where we're all, we are with the Summer Blockbuster. And this weekend, as we are speaking, Thor has opened. I wonder if people will be dressing up like Thor when they go to the theater to see it. Nothing would surprise me. I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe keeps on delivering. And, you know, there was a time there that we weren't sure exactly what Disney was going to do with this IP because of Disney Plus and the success and them wanting to drive that streaming service. But they are learning that they're leaving money on the table if they don't open these big, big franchise movies theatrically. And the predictions this weekend are like, you know, globally, 
about $300 million. Wow. The, um, I think what's interesting and about the Thor part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that people expect it to be the funniest. Thor Ragnarok was hilarious and people are expecting the same out of Thor Love and Thunder. So not just like the big action, crazy MCU that we love so much, but also some good laughs. And Chris Hemsworth shirtless. And, we like that. And there's a bit of gender <laughs> equality in there as well. His, I guess he calls her his ex-girlfriend, but she's now one of them. Yes, we are seeing Natalie Portman come into the MCU, and people are excited about that evolution, seeing a bit of gender equality within a comic book movies is always a good thing. Why are big films synonymous with summer? And do big summer blockbusters receive... Oscar nominations and award nominations, or are they just there for the fun of it and for our pleasure? I think there's there's two things. I mean, the summer blockbuster really is kind of exemplified by those tentpole movies, that intellectual property, those franchises that we know and love. We want to go see them multiple times. People tend to have a little bit freer of a schedule during the summertime. They don't have a hard and fast bedtime for themselves or their kids. There's vacations during the you know summer months that you can go and see a movie during the afternoon. And for anybody who you know doesn't have air conditioning, mm-hmm. this goes back to the beginning of why people used to flock to the movie theaters in the summer months because they were air-conditioned. So I think we still see a little bit of that spillover. Not everybody has air conditioning. Yeah, true. We, you know, we see all of that with the summer blockbusters and, um, you know, those big, bold movies that maybe aren't making you think too hard, maybe aren't pushing the intellectual learning meter of why we go to movies, but they're just big spectacles. And as for awards consideration, you know, this will always be, I think, a point of contention for a lot of people, Anne. And we saw it really come to roost um, this past year with Spider-Man No Way Home. A lot of people thought that that should have been nominated for Best Picture. And when the Academy opened up the Best Picture category from five nominees to ten nominees, that's what was supposed to happen with that, is to allow more space for more, and I'm putting in quotes here, popular movies. Hmm. So I think there's still an evolution of that. I think the Oscars are still kind of looked at as more serious fare, but they've had a lot of pushback from that. And never say never, we could see something like people are talking about could Top Gun Maverick be in contention. I don't think so. Spoiler alert. I don't think so. But it was a good, some good think pieces to read over the past few weeks from entertainment writers. From what I understand, there is Always now, when you're in the theater or you're watching an, an advert on television for a film, it now says only in theaters. And so that's a big change from the past, what, two and a half years, where we had streaming services, and that was where many movies made their debuts. There, It's interesting now to see that that, that, that is sort of the, the key phrase, only in theaters. Big difference now as we are hopefully emerging from the worst of the pandemic. Yeah, that is a huge difference, and but it's, that difference has had a spillover. I mean, we saw about a year and a half ago, Warner Brothers, which is a major, major studio, made a decision to go in the business, we call it day and date. So they opened theatrically as well as their, their streaming service day and date. They did that with the Matrix movie and a few other movies. 
they figured out pretty quickly that they were leaving some money on the table. So now they're not going day and date streaming and theatrically, but the windows, the opportunity to only see it in theaters versus being able to see it in home versus on streaming services, that window has narrowed. So it used to be like only in theaters for like 90 days. And now we're looking at more like only in theaters for 30 to 45 days. Hmm. So the business has really changed, but I think moviegoers like yourself are saying, I want that big theater. I want that big theater experience. I want to sit down with my popcorn with a bunch of strangers, hmm. have the lights go dark and not have myself looking. You better not be looking at your phone for any text during a movie. Oh, I, yeah. say, I say no to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am with you, sister, on that one. So <laughs> Jurassic uh, World, uh, Top Gun, Elvis, Minions, setting the bar pretty high. What are we looking forward to in terms of blockbusters this coming summer? And I, for one, I'm going to step out with Bullet Train, with Brad Pitt. I've seen the adverts for it, and it looks looks hilarious. It looks big. It looks loud. It looks noisy. It's got a huge star in it, Brad Pitt. Will it live up to the expectations? Well, you had me at Brad Pitt, and you <laughs> got me even more when you realized Sandra Bullock is in the movie with him. A lot of people have talked about his Tom Cruise saving the box office. I would also like to say Sandra Bullock has been holding, holding her weight in the box office. She had a huge hit with Channing Tatum with The Lost City. If you haven't seen it, check out The Lost City. It's really, really just kind of big, outrageous fun. They starred, Brad Pitt was also obviously in, well, maybe not obviously, in The Lost City with Sandra Bullock. So they are reuniting for Bullet Train. It has all, all the ingredients you just mentioned, Anne, and then I'd like to throw in, it's set on a train. The whole movie is set on a train, and that brings me back to a movie called Snowpiercer, directed by Bong Joon-ho, who, of course, won Best Director for Parasite. There's really something cool about um, a, a location movie that is just on one location, and the train really gives it a lot of opportunity for really inventive stunts and stuff. It feels very, uh, like... No piercer meets Bond meets Lost City. It's, it's going to be fun. That's opening August 5th. You know, for someone who sits in the dark a lot, you are not in the dark. You are so, you know so much about this industry. So I've got my eye on, this is an animated film, DC League of Super Bets. Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Kate McKinnon, John Krasinski. That, that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. Uh, animation, that's appealing to kids and kids at heart. Will it be a blockbuster this summer? I don't think you can underestimate anything that is family entertainment during the summers. People are desperate to find something to do with their kids. And if they have something safe for a couple of hours that they know they can walk out of, have some conversation with as a family, as well as, you know, just kind of entertain their kids for a couple of hours, that's why we see so much family entertainment during the summer months. And, you know, animation has come so far. Not only does it look great, Anne, but also the scripts and messaging tend to be, dare I say, even better than live action because they have so much time to massage those scripts and make them really sing. What about the maybe not so blockbuster things like Downton Abbey and uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is opening in mid July? Those are gentler, kinder, kinder, and 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 softer movies, but they still have some appeal. Maybe not the blockbuster appeal. Yeah, I think that you know we tend to talk about blockbusters as being 
movies that appeal to people from eight to 80, right? And, or maybe five to 80 these days. But I would say some of the movies that you just mentioned, whether it be Downton Abbey, the sequel, or, or Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, they're certainly going after a more mature audience. You know, dare I say myself, I love seeing this movie. Gussie Manville, Isabel Hubert, you know, they are so, these are actors who just embody every single character. And, you know, I like to see different people represented on screen, not just superheroes. (laughs) (laughs) I like to see an an experience that is, you know, being had by the everyday person. And although Mrs. Paris Goes to Paris is a period piece set in the 50s, it is about a woman, Leslie Manville, who uh, becomes widowed and falls in love with a couture gown and goes to Paris, basically with her life savings to to buy this dress. So really heartfelt and it's based on a best-selling novel. Um, big readers would know this novel for sure. Another movie that I want to mention, Marcel with shoes on. Yeah. It looks so cute. Of course, that was, you know, an animated thing that kind of went viral and they made a movie out of it. And you're kind of like, how did they do that? I know a couple people who have seen it and they say it's life-changing sweet. So I'm in line to see Marcel with shoes on. And then... If you do you like horror? Do you like scary stuff? Anne? No, I have. I'm a little hard on that one. I, I have a problem with that because I tend to take it home with me and then bug-eyed uh, all night long, fearful of what's going to come out from under the cracks of my of my floor, my bed, you name it. So I, I'm not very good with that. How about you? Are you thinking about Black Phone? No, I'm not thinking about Black Phone. That one didn't kind of get me excited, but what did get me excited coming out July 22nd is Nope. And it's the new movie by Jordan Peele. Who of oh, course I did get love out. his stuff. Wow. Right? Nope. So he's not yeah. exactly like thriller horror. Yeah. I mean, I would say more thriller than horror, right? And yeah. he's reunited with Daniel Kaluuya. Kiki Palmer's in this. Stephen Yun is in this. And again, it looks like, you know, creepy thriller. <laughs> but I'm sure knowing Jordan Peele and the kind of movies he makes really has a lot to say about culturally what is happening in, a, happening in our world today. So we are saying yes to nope. Is that correct? <laughs> we are saying yes to nope. <laughs> that is right. So how would you, at this point, when we're just in the early stages of the summer, how would you now describe the blockbuster summer of 2022? What do you think we're going to come away with at the end of the summer? Hopefully not covid Yes, exactly. Um, People love movies and people want a big theatrical experience. You know, you look at a a, a movie like Elvis, it's released, you know, it's 20th Century Fox, which is owned by Disney. That is a movie that very easily they could have just put on Disney+. Plus. They didn't. They released it theatrically. The same as Top Gun Maverick could have been on Paramount+. Plus. Tom Cruise held that movie for close to two years to make sure it had a theatrical release. So, you know, movies are alive and well. The movie theater is um, alive and kicking. I wouldn't say exactly (laughs) well. You know, we're going to see some shift. There aren't as many releases. But if it's big, if it's bold, if it's got recognizable movie stars that people can't feel they can depend on, Damn the torpedoes, people are (laughs) going in droves to see these movies, and I love to see it. Terry Hart, you are a legendary entertainment reporter. Have you ever thought of being a leading lady? Oh, you know, I've always said I'm so glad I never wanted to be an actor. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have nothing but respect for the artists that are actors. 
I envy them so much. Uh, I also think it's one of the hardest things to do for a living emotionally. You always um, have to be vulnerable and open to all of these emotions. And, and I, I just like, as you mentioned, I spend a lot of time in the dark. I think that that is um, a better place for me than on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Will you join me again at some point? I've just loved every minute of this discussion. You are such a wonderful person. As I say, you are a screen gem. Legendary entertainment reporter now with Super Channel, Terry Hart. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks so much, Anne. This has been really fun. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.